Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. All right, here we go. Episode number 255. This is part two of our discussion with Larry Roberts, the owner of Red Hat Media, a podcasting company. Uh, just to give you a brief summary of episode 254, which uh, you should go listen to if you haven't. In the first part of the interview, we focused on his early career journey. That included his experiences in martial arts as an instructor and as a business owner. He also talked about his time at Texas Instruments, his evolution into a technical trainer. We talked about his involvement in Toastmasters to enhance his communication skills. And he also reflected on people management and teased his transition into IT. So in this episode, we're going to get a little bit more into that transition in his career in IT. The first part I would really love for you to listen out for, well, it's this early involvement in an ERP system implementation. I was listening back, and I don't think we mentioned that ERP stands for Enterprise Resource Planning, a type of business software that typically integrates accounting modules, order entry, purchasing, uh, maybe warehouse operations, maybe transportation management, all into one giant software that everybody in the, the organization tends to use. Just a little uh, clarification there. And it's, it's a really interesting story. And I, and I think that there's, there's some nuggets to listen to. There was also something to listen out for, which was as the company grew, they did some acquisitions and mergers. And there was a significant cultural shift. There's, there's some stuff to listen out to there. And then an interesting caveat there was the, um, a need for, for Larry to, or a request for him to adapt um, his skills in that context. Finally, I think it's worth mentioning, uh, it's a big part of the episode, Larry's journey through uh, personal challenges uh, with addiction and recovery. There's quite a bit of detail about Larry's personal journey through that. So if that's a trigger for you, um, please uh, let this be a trigger warning. Okay, um, instead of me uh, talking about the episode, let's just jump straight into it and listen to it. Episode 255, part two of our discussion with Larry Roberts. I'm fascinated to hear about this transition to more of an IT focus role with uh, the ERP solution. Had they had they already purchased JD Edwards? Were they already implementing it? What at what point in the project were you brought on? It was very early. I want to say they had purchased it. And if you're familiar with JD Edwards, there were, back then there were two versions. It was World and there was One World. Uh, one World was more of an 
it had more of a Windows feel and look to it. And I know, I remember there was discussions on whether or not we were going to go world or one world, but I don't recall specifically if that decision had been made. I want to say it had by the time I moved up there, that they had already gone with the just J.D. Edwards world, not one world, which is a more of a green screen application. I don't know if I'm getting too technical here, but it was a, a more of a dated application than their new version. One of my first jobs was actually doing a, an, a search for an ERP application. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm familiar with the, you know, the decision to go through that. And it is like at a certain point, it was a big deal of like, hey, are we going to go with a GUI style or are we going to, you know, use the green screen version, which a lot of times was extremely fast. Right. And there's lots of keyboard shortcuts and, and maybe a, a big ramp up time for people to learn all those keyboard shortcuts. But then once they were efficient on it, then they could sit down and do everything without using a mouse. And a lot of times the Windows version is like, oh, you, you type and then you use the mouse and then you type and then you use mouse. And there's like all the like they, I don't think the the science of user interface had really taken hold yet. So the. Windows versions looked prettier and they were worse to use. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, they were slower. Because, I mean, this was, this was 2000, 2001 in that time frame. I want to say it was 2001 when I moved up into the, uh, into the IT department. But it's a little blurry at this stage after, after all these years. But it was right there in that time frame. We ended up going the green screen route because it, this always stumped me uh, for the whole time I was there. Very customized shop. So... Big RPG program department. And so they went with the green screen because we had very customized uh, WMS systems or warehouse management systems. And uh, they went with the green screen version because they wanted that customizability uh, on that back end. And it, that always stopped me because every facility that we went to, we did so much customization that it was almost like it was their each each facility had their own unique version of JDE. And I'm like, what's the point of having an ERP if we're customizing it specifically to how they're currently doing business instead of having the facilities adjust how they're doing business to, to match the ERP system? So that's still a question that to this day I haven't had answered. That's a tough friction in a lot of companies in any system. Yeah. Do we change the way we're doing things to fit this new solution? Or do we fit the solution to what we're already doing to prevent more work, basically? Right. Well, they had everybody read Who Moved My Cheese. So it's like we're trying to lay the groundwork for change, but then we didn't change. So That's funny because I'm talking about the exact same time frame and we also read that book. <laughs> I think everybody read that book back then. Whoever wrote that book, I can't remember the author's name, but they, they made some bank. It's, it is fascinating. Is it, is it a company that grew through acquisition at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they still do. I mean, they're they're buying companies, multiple companies every year. They've they've they reached that that billion dollar company mark probably about three or four years ago. I think either they did it the year before I left, or they did it the year right after I left. So they they're they're massive. And again, they've been in business since I think it was 1915 is when they were founded, and they just continue to engulf the entire industry. It's definitely something that that continues to this day. There's definitely companies where the mergers and acquisitions strategy of we're going to purchase this company and their entire IT solution we're going to absorb and then we're eventually going to move them onto what it is that we do now and you know retrain everybody but if you don't have 
an M&A strategy and you just, you, you never do that absorption where you, you just kind of like let that team operate and then you kind of integrate with them through an interface of like, you know, paper invoices and like orders and transfers and, and not ERP to ERP as like part of a unified interface, then, then it just persists. And then you have technical debt. It's funny because my wife's going through that right now. They just acquired another company and now she's uh, actually teaching uh, the JD Edwards side of accounting at this new company so they can all get on the same system. So I'm like, oh, cool. Welcome to my old world. But, you know, the mergers and acquisitions side, that was one of the things that really impacted my professional career with that company was we eventually bought a company and we actually absorbed their IT department. But instead of just absorbing it, we brought over a lot of their people. And man, you want to talk about a culture shift. It was an extreme culture shift. And it, it changed my perception of my role and my position within the company quite a bit that's where things started to go a little south for me. And I started to realize this isn't where I started working. You know, this isn't the same company today. And they're still an amazing company. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't necessarily the fit for the company anymore. And uh, it made me have to start looking at some, some outside alternatives. What were some of the nuances of that? Number one, now working with technologists most intimately all the time. And then the culture changed itself. I was lost most of the time. It was, it was very intimidating because I didn't have a technical background. You know, I mentioned I have six credit hours to my name from college, and one of those courses was Pascal programming. So that was my only, uh, aside from Atari and, and, and Nintendo at the time, that was my only introduction to tech in any way, shape, fashion, or form. And now here I am in the IT department, and I'm like, I don't fit here. How do I survive in this environment? I'm, compl- I'm a complete fish out of water. No idea about a lot of, you know, they start talking about RPG programming and they talk about, you name it, tech terms coming at me left and right. And I really didn't know the vast majority of the time what they were talking about. So I had to go through a time of evolution, I guess, uh, because I was a member of the core team. And before we started doing any implementations, there was probably a year's worth of ramp up of the core team traveling to different sites and doing a deep dive analysis into exactly how their processes worked so that we understood how the implementation was going to impact what they were doing and whether or not we needed to make some changes on the, on the uh, implementation side or if we needed to change some processes. So that gave me an opportunity to start absorbing some of this, uh, this I don't know, what do they call it, tribal knowledge uh, at each of the facilities. So it, it, having that opportunity kind of brought me up to speed and it allowed me that opportunity to, to, be, to develop an intimate knowledge with JDE and how to navigate through the screens and, and even into the data itself. Uh, and I felt most secure because when you understand a database and you understand the data, at least from my perspective, I didn't have to know the concept. I just had to know where to go to get the data that this person wants to see. They want to see SO numbers. They want to see how many uh, of uh, widgets were bought on that sales order number. They want to know what the SKUs were, the part numbers were that were bought on that sales order number. And if I knew where to go get that, I could give them the information they were looking for. So it went back almost to where, if we want to draw some, some parallels here, back to understanding how to throw a punch and a kick, but not really understanding the application. 
So I felt very secure in learning the data over those years. But then after the vast majority of the implementations were done, the only time we continued to do implementations was when there was an acquisition and we had streamlined the process so much, there really wasn't much of a need anymore for me to do any training. So I wasn't traveling for these acquisitions. I wasn't traveling and teaching the users because the implementation team at the time, and really they were more business analysts than anything, they were doing the training as they were doing their business analysis and understanding how to tra- take that information and pass it back to the programmers. So they were kind of, it always reminded me of the office when they go, what exactly do you do here? And he would say, I'm good with people. I take the specifications and I give them to the programmers that I take and I tell the users how I'm good with people. That was the role that kind of took me out of a role. So that's when I started having to try to understand it from a conceptual level and an application level. I don't just need to know now where this data is, but how does that data apply to the various different departments? How does that data allow management to make data-driven decisions with day-to-day information that shows everything from the business at a transactional level? And that's where I started to flounder a bit. I eventually got up to speed, but then two, they started to expect more. And now I had to become a programmer. And I'll tell you, programming is just not my jive. It's it's just, it just never worked for me. I'm more of a creative than I am uh, that logic. I I don't necessarily have the best logic brain. (laughs) So I don't tend to think logically. I think creatively and pretty like, oh, this report looks beautiful. And like, yeah, it looks beautiful, but it doesn't tell us anything. So, so, so I, I struggled in that arena. And that's kind of where I was, was at at the end of my career with that company. It was still struggling with how to apply things conceptually. Let me back up and see if I understood correctly. You said a lot of your strengths over time was you knew where the different fields were. So that's, that goes back to kind of database schema. Yeah. Right. The, the layout of the different tables and, and how the joins worked and, and how they could work. So maybe you could effectively say, hey, you know, you need to join this table with this table in order to get access to this. And, oh, you need some details. So here's the transaction detail. You need to join it this way. Yep. And that is kind of the, the parallel is the foundational and fundamental techniques. But when it came time to actually fighting, when someone said, hey, we need to be able to measure how well the business is doing. Uh, That was kind of one level up and and kind of something that you didn't have a background in. That was when it started to, you had to learn that skill. Yeah. That's not where you started foundering. It's when they said, oh, and now we also need you to do this uh, programmatically, like in a a programming language. Exactly. I mean, I was great with SQL. I I would still consider myself a, a... maybe higher than intermediate, not quite super advanced SQL user, but I can, I can write some pretty complex SQL. But when it came down to applying that to, and I tried RPG programming, failed miserably. I tried C sharp, failed miserably. It's just, when it, when it got to the more complex languages, that's where I started to flounder a lot. But yeah, writing basic queries or even intermediate to advanced queries, I was the trainer for how to write queries. So J.D. Edwards has a query tool built into it, and I was the query guy. I would travel across the country, teach people how to write their queries so they could get their their day-to-day information above and beyond just reports. But then I also became the, I hated this name, they called me Crystal Larry because uh, we implemented Crystal Reports. I was the Crystal Reports guru. I could do amazing things with Crystal Reports. 
that most other people that I had met couldn't do. So Crystal Larry was in the house trying to teach some of the more advanced users how to use Crystal Reports as well. So Crystal Reports, SQL, man, I'm good to go. But we take it to that next evolution. That's where I started having some issues with like ETLs and, and, and that sort of thing is, and how to write a program that would do that and taking data from multiple sources and different types of sources and normalizing that data and trying to bring it together to give us a, a standardized output that's where I really started struggling. And, at, you know, at the same time, too, I'm in my 40s by this time. I don't want to learn new stuff. You got these cat daddies that are coming out of college. These young kids are coming in here and they're crushing it. <laughs> they're writing stuff. that's just blowing my mind. And I try to look at some of the applications they write. I'm even just I'm just trying to try to figure out what the code is even doing. And I'm like, I can't even read this. And then I go, hey, man, you can you help me with this? And I'm like, dude, no, I, I got to write this program over here. So. You know, it was me struggling to try to get up to speed and all these kids coming out with these master's degrees and they're data scientists. And it is, I was like, okay, yeah, I got a little desperate there at the end. There needs to be a, a good training program there, right? But maybe the thing that you wanted to do was leave. So can you tell us that story? Yeah, because I think everything combined. We absorbed that one company and a lot of their management staff came over. And we're just placed in management roles. And I actually ended up being a direct report to one of these new cats. And the very first conversation I had with him, he called me his subordinate. And that did not resonate with me. And I let him know in no uncertain terms that I was not going to be called a subordinate. I'm more than happy to call you sir, which I did all the time for my direct reports and give you the respect that the position deserves but you're not going to call me a subordinate. And that was just our first encounter. Was this somebody like ex-military? No, he wasn't ex-military. He just was very corporate. Subordinate. I, I don't know. I work in a corporation. I would never call somebody my subordinate. Good. I'm glad to hear that because it did not set well with old Lair. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, so we, ha we had some fun times together. And it was just that entire culture that he brought that I, I just did not have an appreciation for even though I would voice it to, to certain people that were even his direct reports, uh, nothing ever changed. And I was like, this is just not the company that I grew to know and love. And I don't really fit here. And I knew I didn't fit there, not just culturally, but I knew I didn't fit there from a skills perspective either. Uh, again, the, the, my skill sets were, were dated and we had a new generation of kids that were coming in and they were doing amazing work. And I felt extremely threatened not by those individuals, but just by the fact that I didn't have the skill sets to keep up with these kids. They are doing amazing things. And I recognize that skill gap between the new generation and me. Again, at the time, I wasn't motivated to bridge that gap. I don't love writing SQL. It's not something that I, I, that I, I get a good feeling out of. It's, it's not rewarding for me at all. It was very rewarding from a financial perspective. I mean, I had a great salary. My wife and I drove two killer cars. You know, I had my cat daddy Ford Raptor that was all tricked out and had a custom system and we had all the toys we wanted. But Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on call 24-7, the, the toys didn't justify the responsibilities enough in, in, in my eyes at the time anymore. So I started to become very, very jaded, less engaged. I may or may not have been caught sleeping in my office once or twice or half a dozen or more times, you know, because it was just, I just hated it. I grew to hate it, and I knew I had to get out. You mentioned on your Red Hat Media site that you burned out. How soon before you actually took the action to leave, did you start to notice these things 
okay, something's off, and a change probably needs to happen versus deciding to take action. Yeah, it was probably around 2018-ish or so, 2017, 2018. That was when I founded my, my media company. Uh, it wasn't called Red Hat at the time. I founded that company in 2017. And I had the idea that it would take me to where I could leave corporate and, and do, <clears throat> excuse me, do podcasting and content creation full-time. But even before then, I've, I've always, always, always had some sort of side hustle. Uh, even back when I was still loving my corporate job, I started a swimming pool company. And I built that company up. To, uh, yeah, I uh, <laughs> see your expressions for those, you know, we're audio only, but I just saw your expressions go, what? But yeah, I started another business. I started a swimming pool company and I grew it to the point where I either had to jump ship and do swimming pools full time or I had to sell the company. And at the time I was still loving my job and I just did not have that, that internal fortitude to cut that guaranteed paycheck and pursue that entrepreneurial journey. So I ended up selling the company, made a little money, bought me a truck, wasn't the Raptor, but it was a different truck. It was, it was a great thing, but I've always been a side hustle kind of guy. Uh, it, even before the swimming pool company, I had tons of online little businesses. You know, I used to use Google AdWords. I, well, I built my entire swimming pool business on Google AdWords back when Google AdWords was relatively a, a new thing. But before that, I mean, on eBay, I sold literally everything may or may not have received a couple of cease and desist letters from time to time at the office, by the way, I would do all my eBaying at work because they had high speed internet. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? But I would sell like owner's manuals to ATVs because we were always big four wheeler kind of guys. So I would sell those for nine ninety nine, burn them to a CD, ship them off to a customer. That was always great. Brought in some great, what we used to call mailbox money. You know, I'd get a few hundred bucks, maybe a thousand bucks a month just in mailbox money. I had a site one time called IWantToBreakUp.com. It was a business that I started that would break up with people for you. So if you, if you didn't want to break up with your significant other, we would send a letter or we'd make a phone call and we'd break up for you. So there was always, always did crazy stuff, man. And side hustles were always my thing. So always had to have some fun on the side. So this whole entrepreneurial thing, it wasn't something new that I jumped on. When I fell into podcasting, I've always had that, that entrepreneurial spirit on the side that, that kept me going too. When you sold these things off, was there any sense of grief, loss, dealing with letting it go and going on to the next thing? Or was that not really an issue? The swimming pool company? Yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of regrets selling that because I firmly believe that could have been that could have been my meal ticket. That could have been, I, I look back and I imagine now where I would be if I had just kept it. If I had just suffered through. Larry the pool guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 100%. I think when I sold it, I had 54 clients on our pool routes. Uh, I had two guys working for me that would do the routes. I had arranged my schedule at the office because uh, I was great friends with, well, the guy that recruited me from the warehouse up there. He and I became great friends. He became a tremendous mentor, still a tremendous mentor to me. To this day, he had uh, worked with me a little bit the, to allow me to adjust my schedule so that I could work like six to three at my office. So uh, when I get off at three, I've still got time to do some pool stuff. Everything was in the position to just make that the most successful endeavor ever. And it was successful, you know, but I, I, again, I just didn't have the courage at the time to step out and, and, and make that what it, I believe it firmly could have been. So out of all of my endeavors, that's the one that I regret is, is letting that one go. Where in the timeline did you actually discover and get super interested in podcasting? That was in 2014. 
So I came out of, uh, and this is interesting too, because we haven't even talked about this. During my time uh, in my corporate venture with this company, after I realized, and I said this earlier, after I realized I wasn't going to make it to the UFC, I was pretty lost because uh, I had teammates that did make it to the big show. So I, I, I trained with some of the best fighters in the world at the time. Uh, but I was born with a birth defect that left me with only 60% of the average person's lung capacity. So no matter how hard I trained, no matter how good my technique was or how I conceptually understood fighting, once I got beyond fighting other wannabe fighters and I started fighting athletes that knew how to fight, it was over. And there was nothing, nothing I could do to overcome that because I had no gas tank. You know, if, if you make it past the first two rounds, you're going to crush me in the third because I'm done. And there was nothing I could do. So that realization, that was a very, very difficult, difficult time in my life was that realization. So after that, I just threw myself wholeheartedly into the corporate life. And for me at the time, and being part of the, the implementation team, the implementation team was very tight and it was very almost fraternity-esque. Everybody hung out together. Everybody was kind of family-esque and we would work. And then we'd, after we'd get off work, we'd go to a bar and we would hang out at the bar and we'd close the bar down. And that became life for the longest time. As with anything that I do, I throw myself into it wholeheartedly. And I threw myself wholeheartedly into partying because I didn't do a whole lot of partying in my late teens, early 20s, or even really early 30s. So, but this time, man, I was in it to win it. And me and alcohol, we became really, really good friends to the point that by 2013, November of 2013, I had to go to rehab. Earlier in 13, in July of 13, I had gone into the hospital for the first time for alcohol poisoning. And uh, I did, I think, three days in the hospital at the time. And I finally came back to work. And the gentleman that, that recruited me up to the IT department was the vice president at the time. He brought me into his office. He goes, yeah, I know we're playing this off like you were sick, but we both know what's up. I've smelt it on you. Everybody smelt it on you. They know exactly what's going on. So you can play what you want to play, but you, you've, you've got two choices. If this happens again, you're either going to go to rehab or you're going to pack your stuff. And I was like, oh, dude, I'm so sorry. I know I made a mistake. I'll clean up. Everything will be great. Uh, and I was. I got cleaned up for a couple of months. But, of course, when you're at work, there's always something that's going to frustrate you, right? There's always something that's going to give you that excuse, man. Oh, it was a rough day. I'll just do a small bottle and, you know, do a couple of drinks and everything will be cool. Well, within weeks, the small bottle had built itself back up to a, a handle, which is the big, you know, bottles with the little handle on them to multiple handles a week. And before you knew it, I was just in a complete state of utter chaos. I was sitting on my couch that very last day in November before I went in. And I'd been out of work for two or three weeks. And this, again, goes back to show you how much this company cared about their employees. Why didn't they just fire me? Why did they just get rid of me? But they didn't. So I, I don't know, it'd been four or five days and all I had uh, as far as like food or anything was like special K breakfast drinks, those pre-mixed breakfast drinks. And gin. Gin was my drink of choice. So needless to say, I was not in the best of shape. And I remember sitting on the end of the couch at the time. I don't know if it was an audible voice or whatever, but a moment of clarity struck. And I had a realization that if I didn't get help right then, I wasn't going to see tomorrow. That's the voice that I heard. Get help today or tomorrow's not happening. You're done. It's over. You're out. And somehow uh, I reached out to my friend, Kenny, who also worked with us. <laughs> and I said, Hey bro, um, it's, it's over. I need, I need help. And he left his office, went straight to Ray's office, told Ray I had called. They went and got my wife and the three of them, before you knew it, they were at the house sweeping me up and off I went to rehab. 
Some phone calls were made because some relationships were in place at a very high level that allowed me to go to a very distinguished facility here in Texas. Actually, it's one of the top ones in the country, but Ray had made some phone calls and arranged it so that I could go there. And that's where I was. And I got there and they couldn't even stabilize me. So I got to rehab and uh, they had to call an ambulance. So, cause I was too far gone at the time. They couldn't stabilize my vitals. So the ambulance came to the rehab facility, picked me up and swept me off to the hospital once again, where I spent about four days. Then they picked me up again, drove me back to rehab. I was in their recovery wing for probably a week. And then I went through the process and I was there for seven weeks. And after that, I was sober. I'd done a lot of damage, you know, to my nervous system. I was in pain and blah, 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 blah. It was a very, very, very long recovery, but it was effective. What was the original question that sent me on that tangent? It was about how you got into podcasting, but I want to ask about the realization to get help. Your good friend and the person who hired you told you, hey, this is going to come to a head. You have two choices. Were there others who kind of said, hey, Larry, you're headed in the wrong direction and need to need to make a change? Or I'm just curious about other warning signs saying a change was needed that either maybe were ignored or just didn't quite set in until your moment of clarity. Yeah, I mean, there were definitely my, my inner circle was coming to me and going, dude, you got to dial it back. And there were actually physical warnings. It got to the point where this is so weird. The paranoia was so high that I got to where I couldn't drive. I couldn't drive on a highway without having a panic attack. It made no sense. And I, I can't make it rationally sound rational at all because it wasn't rational. But if you're driving down the road and you have a literal panic attack to where you're just shaking and you can't make it stop because you're so scared, that should be a warning sign that your body's saying, hey, bro, something's not quite right. But I ignored that and I learned to drive on side streets. I learned to drive through neighborhoods to get to where I needed to go. I couldn't, for whatever reason, it was the highway. I couldn't get on the highway and it would freak me out, but I could do side roads. I don't know what it was. I love to drive. Driving is one of my favorite things. Thankfully, it's one of my favorite things again today. I love to drive with the windows down and the tunes cranked up and just escape in my ride. But I couldn't do that anymore. Another warning sign was any time there was the slightest bit of stress, my body would just be drenched in sweat. I specifically remember getting called to a meeting. It was about 4.30 in the afternoon, maybe 5 o'clock. I know I was supposed to be leaving. And at this point in my, uh, my alcoholism, detox, the deets, you know, started kicking in about three, four o'clock in the afternoon. So I was already like, my body was already jonesing for that, that afternoon shot. Uh, but I got called to a late meeting and I just basically a panic attack, but my body just started sweating profusely so much so that my khakis, they look like camouflage because my legs were so wet that my pants were visibly wet in patches where my pants would touch my legs. Somehow nobody said anything, but they weren't stupid, right? Uh, but there were those types of signs. And then again, my inner circle, they're like, bro, you got to dial it back, man. You're hitting it way too hard. You know, you're missing work. You've been in the hospital. What are you doing? Why don't you see these, th these issues? Why, why aren't you doing something to address this? But yeah, I was so far down the, the rabbit hole that even if you want to, and I think too, that's why those last couple, three weeks that I spent uh, just throwing those shots back and not even going to work was because I think I, internally, I think I was done. It's like, I don't, I don't really see a way out of this, so let's just call it. You know, we'll just sit here and drink until it's over. But again, that moment of clarity was like, you sure? Because you're playing this game, and now the game's over. This is it. This is your last call. So do you really want it to be over, or do you want to reach out and say, hey, I got to do something about this? And thankfully, I reached out and did something about it. And, and yeah, that was that. So like I said, I was there, supposed to be there for six weeks in rehab, but at the end of that six weeks, 
I wasn't ready. I remember my wife came and got me and we went to, to lunch at a small diner and I'd been sober for six weeks and it was really, really freaky. I, I was not ready for that social interaction, even though this was in a small town here in Texas in a small diner, you know, maybe 10 people in the spot. And I was just like, I started freaking out because I didn't really know how to accept life in the real world without at least a little buzz, right? So I told my wife, I said, I know you're not going to like this, but I'm, I'm not ready to go home. I got to do another week. So I went back and I did another week. And at the end of that week, I was, I was ready because I think I had that time to mentally prepare myself and talk to some people and that sort of thing and you know, go through some, some discussions that helped me balance out the, uh, the reality of the situation. While I was on medication after that, a lot of medication, I never went to any meetings. This is just me talking. This is how it worked for me. It just doesn't uh, in any way reflect on anybody that does go to meetings or anything like that. Whatever it takes for you to be on your journey of, of sobriety, excellent. Please do it. Um, but for me, meetings weren't my thing. Uh, so after I was done, I was just done. I didn't do AA. I didn't do, there's another program called SMART, which is self-management and recovery training, I believe is what that T stands for. While I was in rehab, we had to select one or the other, and I selected SMART. And the reason that it worked for me is because with SMART, there's an end. There's a goal, and sobriety is the goal. Once you accomplish that goal, ta-da, you're done. With AA, at least my limited understanding of AA being in rehab, was it's a continual process. You still go to the meetings. 30 years later, there are still people introducing themselves as alcoholic, even though they haven't had a drink in 30 years. And for me personally, I stress that, that didn't work for me. If I don't have a drink, I'm not an alcoholic. Do I, do I have an addictive personality? Yeah, that's very obvious in everything, uh, whether it was business. <laughs> Again, whatever I do, I jump in wholeheartedly. So I do have that addictive personality, but eh, I'm not an alcoholic anymore. So that, that's what worked for me. Uh, but again, you know, the company was there for me. They supported me. They brought me in. They, they took care of me. Uh, when I came back to work after being in rehab, no one was even allowed to ask me about it. I mean, there was a rule, especially in the IT department, don't ask where Larry's been. Don't ask him about what he's been doing. Don't ask him anything. Welcome him back and let's just move on. But yeah, man, it was just, it was a very, very difficult time. But your question was, how did I get into podcasting? So I got out of rehab in January of 2014. And one of my coworkers, I don't know, long about March, April, he knew I was looking for something. Didn't know exactly what. Wow. Powerful discussion. And I think uh, maybe a good place to pause. Almost speechless listening back to that. But let's maybe rewind a little bit. Uh, Larry, at the early part of the episode, discussed his early involvement with implementing uh, JD Edwards, the ERP system. It was really interesting to listen back and hear that, that kind of tension, that conflict of adapting business processes to software or adapting software to business processes. Thinking back to, to my time doing that gave me some shivers and, and maybe some flashbacks. Just the, the idea that uh, a company would adapt a piece of software to multiple different business processes across multiple different locations because the processes never got unified and just missing that opportunity to, to unify operational uh, 
processes. Ugh, just sad. The mergers and acquisitions, that cultural shift and the, the conflict uh, with uh, Larry's manager and just the perceptions of, of how his role was changing and how he fit within the company, really powerful. I, it's, it's something that I hadn't really thought about. Even though I'd, I'd experienced it, it's, it's very interesting to hear somebody else's perspective and in reflecting back, it, it was definitely uh, something that, that made me leave a company in my IT career. So really fascinating to, to hear that reflected back from somebody else. There's a little caveat there, a discussion about his lack of desire to add programming skills or to become a programmer. It's not the same thing as not wanting to add skills and grow in general. And we really, again, listening back, we didn't talk about how that might have interacted with the addiction issues that uh, he mentioned later on in the episode. Maybe something to, uh, to go back and, and explore or get some clarification on. I don't know. You tell us. It was interesting to hear uh, Larry's journey through various entrepreneurial endeavors alongside his main career. Um, it kind of provides some insights into balancing passions with professional responsibilities and, and maybe give a hint of how that can help explore the path to becoming a successful uh, full-time business owner. I think the really impactful part of the episode for me, again, was I mean, well, first of all, he was just amazingly candid about his struggles with alcohol, um, addiction, and, and his path to recovery. Can be list, difficult to listen to, but I think it was just a really powerful narrative. I mean, on the dangers of addiction, that that can be very personal. Uh, you know, some people just don't have issues, and some people are very susceptible to it. But also the the key role of community in that recovery, the fact that there were so many people around that were willing to help Larry. Just that inflection point, that moment of needing, realizing that he needed to seek help. Um, and then, you know, the personal resilience afterwards. It was interesting to hear that there were multiple types of programs out there. I think I'd only really ever heard of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and hadn't heard about Smart Recovery. So um, really interesting to hear that decision path too. Uh, so overall, you know, this section, it was difficult to hear, but hopefully very helpful. I can personally see parallels to people's experience in burnout, anxiety, depression, you know, any number of issues that we face during our careers that aren't directly caused by uh, alcohol or, or addiction issues. But, but still, you know, we have those parallel problems, the missing work, um, being not as effective as we used to be and any number of things and you know people pointing out hey this is a problem and not wanting to get help and then finally hitting that inflection point where we we need to get help so very very powerful i hope it was helpful for for you to to listen to and and maybe thought provoking as well i'm also excited for you to hear about the next chapter in larry's career when we get uh, more into larry's career as a podcaster and business owner. But uh, I'll uh, let you guys go for now. And uh, I need to get out of here. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios. <laughs>